Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Star Dunnigan, a reporter for Reckon, an online website that covers the stories of the South. Star's current primary role is writing the weekly Black Joy newsletter that comes out every Friday. Star, hi. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Mark. I'm happy to be here and happy to talk more about Black Joy and more about journalism and where it's going. Nice. Uh, So you're born in Illinois, raised in Alabama, college in Mississippi. Can you share for us the story of your journalism path? Yeah. So uh, funny fact, uh, I was born near Chicago in a city called Waukegan, Alabama, where I guess you can say it's like a nearby suburb. I left when I was five. So I like to say that I'm a full bone, full like bred Southerner because I only spent five years up north in uh, Chi-Town. So um, and then ending up in Alabama um, due to my dad's uh, move into teaching and uh, being a football coach and things of that nature. So um, I always knew that I was a writer. I started writing stories, just regular like stories when I was like in fourth or fifth grade. And the story that I wrote was about this little girl who had a necklace and every time she rubbed the necklace, angels would pop up. And um, well, she went to a slumber party of a girl who didn't like her and the uh, crystal gets stolen or the crystal necklace gets stolen. And she somehow has to find her way to follow this frenemy to Paris where she went to try to sell the necklace and um finds you know throughout this journey she realizes that these angels were with her all along and um I didn't know it then that I was actually writing a period pretty powerful message about like you don't you don't necessarily need these uh objects uh to be connected to a higher power uh that these this higher power is actually something that lives within you uh, of course, my higher power is God, but what if that higher power is to the audience uh, that's, um, you know, someone that they can lean on or something they can lean on. And so um, that isn't to say for people, like I actually have crystals myself, uh, that they can't use those things. It's just like a reminder. So um, I didn't know when I was that young that um, that was the message I was writing. I just wrote it because I love stories like that. I kept writing all throughout middle school and in high school. I was part of a magnet program. It was creative writing magnet program. And I was known as the fiction writer girl throughout that time. And so in the middle of my junior year of high school, I was suddenly moved uh, from my high school in Alabama in Huntsville, Alabama to Jackson, Mississippi, or a small town, it's called Canton, Mississippi but it's literally like up the highway from Jackson, Mississippi. And I mean, it's like middle of nowhere, Mississippi. My school experiences were totally different. Um, my high school experiences. Uh, so basically I went from a artsy magnet high school to a very, I would say that both of them were probably poor, but um, very, it was a non, it's a non-magnet school. There were just two different dynamics that I noticed suddenly when I went into this high school that I actually graduated from in Mississippi 
it was like no one cared for them and it was like a lot less resources and I, that's when I noticed the difference in them the differences of uh, basically how your education is decided based on your zip code. And I always wanted to know why that was. And I wanted to know so bad that one day I actually called the, um, the Jackson newspaper, Clarion Letter. I actually called a Clarion Letter. And I was just like, hey, I have this story that I want to tell. Would you let me tell it? Here I was, like, probably a early senior at this time say that this is what I want to do <laughs> and this is the story I want to tell and I don't know who I spoke to but um basically that editor told me that like well first you need to go to school <laughs> like and I just couldn't just write the story right then and that's kind of what led me into journalism was noticing that those differences in education and I wanted to know that why that was. I ended up going to the University of Mississippi uh, where they have a school for journalism. And that's when I noticed all of the racial tension, of course, that needed to be told that wasn't being told. And I felt like that actually deepened my passion to go out and tell these stories that I felt like weren't being told uh, due to the guise of objectivity, which when I graduated from college, that's actually the track that I wanted to do, even though that didn't turn out to be my first job. I definitely did feel the need, stories that meant something or that could change the way people think or see things, especially when it comes down to a life that may be different from them, live differently from them. That's kind of what let me to this career that I feel like I'm like listen has been around for a very long time but I'm noticing a shift in journalism that's holding itself accountable really even though there's a lot of places where we need to do a better job I'm very excited actually to be in a time to be a journalist at this time um, because I remember when I chose journalism, I was told that it was a dying breed. And luckily I didn't believe it. I feel like it's more of an evolving breed than a dying breed. Uh, and it's up to, up to journalists like us to uh, keep it evolving and to keep it accountable to itself and to our higher authorities. Um, in terms of previous stops prior to Reckon, just run them down for us uh, if you would. Sure. Uh, so my very first job was at a small town newspaper called the Decatur Daily. Uh, and I will kind of put this plug in there. If you have a small town newspaper, please support them because that is definitely where I cut my teeth. I owe my whole career probably to a, a man named Don Hudson. And I'm actually grateful to this day that I had a Black editor um, as my first boss because um, there are differences. And so he felt like more of a mentor to me. I will never forget I had so many mistakes when I interviewed with him. There was like a mistake on my resume. I gave like the wrong number to a reference. So I gave the a wrong number for a reference. It was actually like my professor that luckily my editor knew because he also worked in Mississippi. He ran down these mistakes. Oh, and I also sound like the wrong email <laughs> to the wrong editor. So I sent it to the like, I think I sent it to the assistant editor instead of the main editor. And so he pointed out these mistakes to me 
after our, like probably like a week after our interview two a week or two after our interview. And at this point, I'm two weeks to graduating from college. So I'm really hoping I'm getting this job. Right. And so he tells me all these mistakes and I'm thinking in my head, I was like, well, I lost this job. And um, he was like, all right, will you promise me that you'll work on these things? And I was like, yeah, I, I promise you. Yes, sir. And he was like, all right, well, I'll give you the job then. And I screamed into the microphone, like, oh my God, I got a job. And um, it meant a lot to me at this time because I had mm, I had three main goals for my college career. One of them was to A, go to school without loans, which I managed to do. Uh, two was uh, to graduate with the highest academic honor. Um, at the University of Mississippi, which I believe is called the Taylor Award. It's so funny now, I look at these things and like they so they seem so minuscule now. But yeah, I graduated with a 3.99 GPA, so summa cum laude. So that qualified me to get the Taylor Award. Also to graduate with a job, with a uh, job secured. So I hit all three of my goals by the time I graduated. And so that was not part of your question, but I'm gonna continue. <laughs> So uh, I cut my teeth there at the Decatur Daily. Uh, there were still mistakes that were made, like getting numbers wrong, accidentally putting like quotes, like saying if I was like interviewing two people, like mixing up quotes, that was a very, you know, bad mix up, especially for a newspaper where it's not like today where you can fix them online, um, like in a, in a heartbeat. Um, so it definitely was a place where I uh, was glad to have an editor that mentored me and helped me like notice these things because I wasn't doing it like maliciously. It was like these mis- these little mistakes that could, you know, be big for you as a journalist. And so, but it did teach me a lot about politics and how they work and uh, how to deal with sources, things of that nature. So like just, you know, your typical beginning journalism type stuff. So I was there for maybe two years, probably right at two years before I ended up at AL.com, which is the largest media company in, um, or media, yeah, media company in the state of Alabama. And it was so funny how I got that job too. So again, story time. Um, as much as I love the Decatur Daily and getting to know the people of this small town, because I was responsible for reporting on a really small rural county called Lawrence County, Alabama, it was really hard for me to stay there because of the pay. And so I realized that I wasn't ever going to get paid there. And so typically, like people who work in those small town newspapers end up working for L.com anyway, because of that's just kind of how the pipeline works. Uh, you end up working for these larger organizations. I was like emailing somebody weeks before I decided to move from the small town newspaper to a large organization. And he told me he would keep me in mind. Lo and behold, while I was actually interviewing for these other jobs that had nothing to do with journalism, but had really good pay. Um, they're typically like the jobs I was interviewing for were, um, were more space related, which if you know about Huntsville, Alabama, um, it's like space capital USA over here. Like our schools are named after astronauts and rockets and 
it just gets bigger and bigger by the day that Huntsville grew up in. It's not the same Huntsville that it is right now, honestly. And it just recently became the biggest city in the state. So I was looking at like looking at the Marshall Space Flight Center to work for them as a contractor, kind of, uh, for technical writing, which is really boring. No offense to people who are technical writers. <laughs> Basically, um, I interviewed for a position at the Marshall Space Flight Center. And while I was in vacation in New Orleans, I get a call from them saying that I did not get that job despite being interviewed like four times. And so there I was on vacation in New Orleans. And I was so disappointed looking at my boyfriend and was just like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> and so I literally like, while we were having dinner, I prayed at that time. I said, God, if you want me to remain a journalist, you're going to have to give me a sign. Lo and behold, an hour later, that same editor who I emailed, who I emailed like weeks before for AL.com reached back out to me and said, hey, we have a position open for a night reporter in Birmingham, Alabama. Can you do that? And I was like, oh, my God, it's a burning bush moment. <laughs> and what I mean by burning bush is like a, I'm thinking about the story of Moses and how uh, God talked to him through a burning bush. So what I was asking God for was a burning bush moment. And so I was like, oh my God, this is a burning bush moment. Clearly he wants me to be a journalist. I told him that, um, yeah, we set up an interview like on a Monday, that Wednesday I get hired. And so off I was to Birmingham, Alabama. I was a night reporter for AL.com for, I think, from 2016 to probably December 2018, Reckon looked differently than it does now. Like Reckon right now, it's kind of like it's a whole separate thing away from AL.com. Now, I mean, back then it was part of AL.com. Like we still talked about Alabama issues, but I really loved what we were doing at Reckon 1.0. I guess I'll call it that. <laughs> and Reckon 1.0, it was like very investigative, uh, very, um, it's more nuanced journalism. Um, so it wasn't, wouldn't it be just about like a murder that happened? It'll be investigating like, we didn't do the story, but this would be like an example, like how maybe like poverty would be like the roots of a crime or something like that. Um, let me give you another example. Our, what I remember was like our first big story at Reckon was when the whole Roy Moore craziness happened. And um, we were interviewing people that was attached to that story. And then Doug Jones became our Senator. And it was just like a huge deal. And Reckon was kind of like in the center of that at the time. And I came right when all that was happening um, due to my um, passion to write more, I will say nuanced stories versus just breaking stories. Because breaking stories are very like surface level, like who, what, when, how, like who, what, when, and where, but you barely touch the why, in my opinion. And so with Reckon, and even with the Reckon now, we touch more of the why and the who. So I know one of the questions here is like, uh, what the purpose of Reckon is. Uh, so do you want me to go into that real quick? Like the purpose of what Reckon is right now? Sure, go ahead. Uh, so the key to really simple is that, and I've noticed this myself, even throughout 
while I was at AL.com, people don't know how to report in the South. <laughs> uh, they don't know a lot about the South. The South has been overlooked. There's so many good nuanced stories here. And I think that it gets completely overshadowed by this whole idea that the South is racist and that um, no one is like fighting for their rights here when that is um, completely untrue. Our job at Reckon is to tell the story of the South basically um, in a way that hasn't been told before because people aren't really looking at it in that way. There's this quote that says like, uh, as the South like goes to nation. And I don't think a lot of people realize that there are a lot of players from the South that made America accountable for its democratic principles that it promised in the constitution, you know? And you can look beyond just the civil rights era. Um, there's a lot of history that we're unfolding. Uh, and so I really love what we're doing at Reckon and to like answer these questions, not only answer these questions of the South, but um, all right, tell these stories of the South that haven't been told yet or haven't been looked over, but also highlight these key players of today who are creating change in our nation today. Um, so that is basically what Reckon is. So you uh, put out the Black Joy newsletter every Friday, and I want to just run through a few examples of things that you've written about recently. One piece was on two artists drawing Black superheroes, uh, and it was uh, highly specific uh, in how those, uh, those characters were drawn. Uh, you did something on a photographer documenting Black people's smiles. You did another piece on a woman who arranged for Black Santa Claus for Christmas, and you did something else on an 11-year-old who directs a nonprofit to help the homeless. How do you come up with your ideas? Oh, gosh. There's so much Black joy. It's like a minefield. <laughs> uh, I love it. Um, it keeps me busy. It really does. Sometimes people like suggest things to me. And sometimes like people will like send me emails or stuff like that. Most of the time, it's really not as like complicated. It's just like, if I see a story of joy, I go for it. I want to interview people about it. Um, before how did I the series on, come about? Oh, how did the series come about? How did, how did uh, the idea of doing it in the first place come about? Uh, okay, so then I had to go a little bit back in my AL.com days um, to tell you that story. But basically, um, while I was a night reporter, uh, when you're reporting at night and you're like the only reporter for the whole entire state at night and all that breaking news is coming away, uh, it is a lot. It is very daunting. Um, to I'm going to go ahead and pitch this. There needs to be like a, like a mental health like therapist paid for or whoever's doing like the night reporting because it is a lot to take in. Um, you do a lot of murder, um, you do a lot of crime. And um, something that I was hearing continuously as I was reporting on these, like not just reporting on a crime, but going into these neighborhoods and listening to like the mothers cry over like, that's not my baby, is that my baby? Talking to family members, it was just like this constant question of why do you only come when we're dead, you as in like journalists. And probably the biggest wake-up call was when there was a Black Lives Matter protest 
that went from Kelly Ingram Park, which this was my first time at Kelly Ingram Park, after being awed at all the history that was surrounding me, like looking at, like literally looking at 16th Street Baptist Church, having this protest in a safe area where kids during the Children's March of 1963 were attacked by fire hoses and dogs, having this protest happen from Kelly Ingram Park to the um, police station, which wasn't um, police headquarters, which isn't that far. And after they did the protest there and you know said what they needed to say, right across the street is AL.com. They turn around and go to AL.com and they start talking about AL.com and how we report unfairly and blah, blah, blah. And so how... I can't remember exactly what they said because this was many moons ago. But basically, in a nutshell, it's like, like we were reporting unfairly. Uh, we weren't including their voices. That's where I got from it. And me as a Black woman reporter seeing that, I mean, it opened up my eyes to a couple of things. It's different now, but the fact that like in Birmingham, predominantly Black, it was me and then Roy Johnson, like we were the only two black writers. Uh, we had another black reporter um, who was reporting on Mobile. And as far as Huntsville, I know for a fact that was the only, and probably still is the only um, black reporter up in Huntsville. And I say probably still is the only because we haven't really seen each other <laughs> at the office. So things could have been changed since then. It was eye opening to me how that how like we are headquartered in a predominantly black city but we don't have a lot of black reporters and then to see the way that like just to see like how certain stories maybe missed out on or something like that it's kind of hard to talk about now but I mean I have to think about it but I remember like making a post about it on Facebook and my supervisor at the time, of course, he saw it and asked me questions like, do you feel like that we failed our community? Uh, and at that time, because I just started, I said, no. I guess I would say now, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were. I say were, because of course, we're totally different now. But back then, yeah, we were. And I think they see it now versus then. Because like I said, journalism is evolving. And so how this all leads to Black Joy is coming, I promise. Um, so basically, um, in 2017, February 2017, I started a project called the Black Magic Project on top of like my nighttime reporting duties, which was really hard. It was what it was basically the title is. I called it Black Magic Project because Birmingham is known as the Magic City. And uh, I wanted to talk about Birmingham's Black Magic because... Black people doing incredible things in their communities, simple as that. And so we made kind of like a package of like positive Black stories. Now, this isn't to say that we didn't do that in the first place, but it just like gave it just a special highlight, in my opinion. I did that for probably like a year and a half, maybe. Um, every, at this time, at this point, it was like every February because nighttime reporting is daunting. Then it became like a Facebook page which still exists. You can still find us at um, Black Magic Project. 
uh, on Facebook and it's just a Facebook group where we just post about like positive news or talk about black topics in the South. And then how Black Joy came, uh, happened after the, I say the birth of Reckon 2.0. Um, during the pandemic and the protests that were happening at the time, uh, I was already kind of thinking about doing a series that was just about Black Joy and how valuable Black Joy is at that moment and still now. And how it was kind of like a, you know, getting away from the Black trauma things and focusing on the liberating joy. Like joy is just something that like something that, that the essence that so no one can take away from you, you know? And so I felt like our community needed more of that. And so my editor came to me and he told me that, oh, let's do a series called Black Joy. And so we started off as a series at first and then it evolved into a newsletter. And it wasn't just me. Uh, there was also other reporters too that also developed their own newsletters. So we have Honey, which focuses on LGBTQ issues and women's issues. Um, and then we have the actual record newsletter. And then we have our uh, the conversation, which is the newsletter for our podcast, uh, The Reckon Interview, which is by John Hammetry. That is um, how Black Joy came to be. It's literally an evolution of a passion of mine to uh, talk about Black positive stories. And that's basically it. <laughs> well, that that's terrific. I mean, it it's certainly, um, it's touching an area for most people that I think um, needs to be touched. Now, can you um, take us through, let's pick one story and just walk us through from idea to finished product and you can tell us about what your process was uh, for that? I can tell you about the one that's coming out Friday. That's probably my most exciting one so far. Go ahead. Uh, well, there's two. I'll read through two of them. You can choose. But um, so I am, there is a um, podcast by National Geographic Explorer, Tara Roberts, um, called Into the Depths. And basically, um, she is herself uh, has also had some time in the journalism path. She left her job to follow these Black divers, organization called Diving with a Purpose, who trains divers to um, go out and explore the remains of enslavement ships uh, across the world, really. And oh my God, it was like a, such an incredible podcast. And then I learned that her family roots are um, from the South because we focused on the South. I thought, oh my God, this would be a perfect person to interview um, because if you listen to the podcast itself, it doesn't just go into like, the history of these Black enslavement ships uh, are these uh, ships that held Black cargo, Black Cuban cargo. Um, it also goes into a lot about like Black identity and what it meant for her as a Black Southern woman to be following these people to doing this training herself. And it was just a beautiful story that she was telling that not only included the people she was following and the divers she was following, but also the communities she was reporting on. And also there's a lot of lessons that can be taken from, from the podcast itself about like being proud of your own black identity and 
wanted to like go out and discover the treasures and the treasure troves of your own family line, you know, um, as black people. I shoot my shot because I, what I typically do black joy, uh, I typically do like entrepreneurs and like, you know, just regular like black joy, which is what it should be. You don't need to be famous uh, or start a business to be part of black joy. Black joy is as simple as like fighting like peace in your own breath every day. Uh, so I shot my, I shoot my shot here because it was like, a celebrity like tried to contact a celebrity and so I went ahead and emailed her and probably the next day uh, her publicist uh or her I believe it's the uh, like spokesperson for or public relations person for National Geographic contacted me back and we just started setting up a time to talk and so I think that taught me a lot about like if you really want something to shoot your shot see where it goes because of one of my goals for Black Joy this year is to get like bigger guests to be highlighted in Black Joy itself. And so this concept is not just the newsletter. We're also building a video and also like a social media like package that talks about how the whole idea of Black people can't swim. It's basically bullshit. Uh, we were always strong swimmers ever since we were we as Black people, like from the test of time, kind of educating people about how that myth came to be and trying to tie that into the uh, ordinances back in the day uh, that prevented Black people from swimming at like these, these local pools, because back in the day that used to be the thing, like you had these you know, local pools at the communities and what some of the time people, Black people could swim in them and how it relates to the high drowning rates of Black people. And so it's kind of like reclaiming that identity, reclaiming our gifts and how that creates so much joy within us. Uh, and just personally for me, I love to swim. I was a lifeguard when I was younger. And that was a myth that I heard over and over again was that, oh, Black people can't swim. And I'm like, I can swim. So I don't know about y'all, you know? I think that's gonna be a really powerful story for people to read because even if you don't like the water, I think it um I think it speaks to the importance of like reclaiming a our narratives because you know when you look at enslavement and you read the history of these ships, you'll know the names of like the captains, but you won't know the names of the people that they were essentially enslaved, basically uh, really enslaving the history they were enslaving, the identity they took, they tried to take away from them, but you know, we made our own way. So that's like an example of like how I craft a newsletter. What has reader response been like? Oh man, um, it's been very popular. I, yeah, I, yeah, this is safe to say. Uh, it's our most popular newsletter in record, uh, which says a lot on how much people really want to see um, stories of hope uh, and joy. And especially now at this time with us being in a pandemic, still dealing with facing our racial history in a way that holds accountability and um, healing. I don't believe that you can have healing without accountability. And the differences between accountability and performativism. 
performative, being performative in all senses, not just in race, but also for the LGBTQ community. Um, and other, uh, I hate to use the word marginalized, um, but other like communities who have been talking for a very long time, but people have not been listening to them. It has been very powerful response. I did not expect the response <laughs> to be this powerful um, because typically when you see people get like polar surprises, it's for something that's dealing with trauma, sadly. Um, but I know I thought about this. I was like, even if I never get a Pulitzer for this work, I really love what I, and that's putting too much glory on myself. I really love what our communities are doing. And I feel honored to tell their stories. And I feel honored that they trust me with these stories because they've been doing this work for a long time. You know, these communities that have been building freedom for themselves in an area that People swear to God that they can't create that freedom. I don't know. I just feel honored to, to have an opportunity to do this type of work because um, it will inspire people in not just my own community, like here in Huntsville, Alabama, but communities across the South that they do have the power to change their lives to change the needle, whether that be politically or socially, even as it's just within their homes, you know, if I never get a pulse for that, but I was able to change someone's mind about something in a way that helps someone that may not uh, live in the same community as them, I'm done my job. You mentioned um, a long time. You're currently doing some oral history reporting, trying to share the positive stories from Birmingham 1963, a yeah. time of segregation, church bombings, and quite frankly, just a lot of bad news. Um, <laughs> yeah. What has that project been like? Um, gosh, it's been, it's, I told my editor this, it's like sitting down in the living room with your aunts and uncles talking about like what they did back in the day um, to find joy in their own lives. Um, kind of like a cookout type of atmosphere because basically we did one large interview with the group itself. And then I go back and I do like many interviews with each person that um, that I, um, that they may have like records of, like whether that be videos or photographs. I wanna say sigh of relief. Enlightening doesn't seem powerful enough because when you think of Birmingham in 1963, when I thought about it, I thought about my history classes back when I was a kid and all I heard about Birmingham is that um, that was a city of trauma um, with the church bombing happening in September, the children's march happening before that in May, and then how these communities were basically bombarded for basic rights. It was, it's like reading racial gaslight. If you want a definition of racial gaslighting, that's a good definition of it. Not just racial gaslighting either, just racial terrorism. Like that's a big example of what happened of like um, racial terrorism, um, Birmingham in 1963 uh, is a good example of what racial terrorism looks like. Um, and there are worse examples out there across the South sadly. But this is what I tried to convey in last week's, um, well, the weeks before last, Black Joy. But um, 
I do feel like Birmingham itself gets a bad rap period. Like before I moved there, I thought about it being like a city of trauma. Um, you know, Birmingham gets turned into Murderham, which is what I've heard it get called today. It's like this turb, this shadow that Birmingham can't get out from under. But when I moved to Birmingham and I noticed all of this black magic underneath these quote unquote shadows, it was like, I'm kind of like undoing that legacy of what journalism failed to do, if I'm being quite honest. Um, there's a saying that journalism is like the first draft of history. I believe that's how it goes. Well, drafts are meant to be edited. So it's like, we reported on this black trauma, but there was so much that was left unwritten that we are just now kind of honoring and discovering today. Now, of course, there have been things that have been said about like Tuxedo Junction and um, Birmingham's like jazz history. And we talked about like the Temptations being from Alabama. Um, but what about like beyond that? Like from Melvin Todd, and I didn't put this in the newsletter that um, he was in, but he grew up in the same neighborhood as the Temptations. And he said that when he was younger and he was listening to, you know, people literally singing in the streets, that their voices was actually better than the temptation. Um, it's just trying to get, it's just trying to get all sides of the stories told because like black people are more than just their trauma. We're also our joy. And if we're at a time period where we want to acknowledge our history, then we need to acknowledge all of it. That includes the parts that makes us uncomfortable and the parts that give us joy because the consequences of not doing that, I mean, essentially you're like diluting our blackness. And I don't know, it's just like by doing this project, I feel like I'm just fleshing out that history that, um, or playing a role because there's other people doing this too uh, and fleshing out that history that hasn't really been touched in Birmingham yeah, that hasn't been touched in Birmingham because these people, these members of this organization, they do go talk at the schools and they talk to kids. And I believe one of them has told me that when they plan to talk to kids again, that not only will they talk about how it felt to be surrounded by that trauma, because some of these people were actually at the church when the bombing happened. Um, and on top of that, dealt with a lot of racial trauma themselves. But they also are making notes to mention the joy that they experienced at the time in these classrooms. And that means a lot to me because I can only imagine, well, they, I, I guess I'm saying like they get a more nuanced idea of what Birmingham actually is versus just this traumatizing story of Black Birmingham. These voices ought to hurt because they're not speaking. It's because they've been ignored. Well, these voices have been speaking for a very long time, sometimes for generations. We're just now giving them the microphone. So I guess I say I'm giving the microphone. Well, I don't know how I was saying now. I have to think about that. But um, I do want to say these communities have been speaking for a very long time and have always been there. I think we as journalists have to keep in mind that if we enter the community and they've been speaking for so long, they may, um, 
some may consider it like a slap in the face. It's like, now you're coming, you know? You like, we've been here and suffering for so long or not suffering, but like been having these conversations for so long and now you show up, you know? How do you know that they don't want to be tokenized, basically? That's always something I, even with the LGBTQ community, even though I'm not a part of it, like I keep that in mind in my head all the time making sure that they're not being tokenized in my writing and in my reporting. So yeah, um, I just say I'm a reporter. <laughs> I'm a reporter and I just try to get people's stories told. And sometimes when you do that, um, you run into, um, I guess what we would call unexpected, um, unexpected and unfortunate circumstances. Yeah. You, um, you did have uh, an incident where you were arrested while reporting. And I think that that's an experience that it's worth um, educating like people about what that was like. And I wanted to give you the, the floor to do that if you were willing to do that. Uh-huh. Um, so how that all came about, I know I was already out. This happened at Lynn Park, which is right across the street from uh, Birmingham City Hall. There used to be a Confederate monument there. And for a while there, like the public was trying to get this Confederate monument uprooted from this, you know, predominantly Black city. That's a statement there. You have a Confederate monument, a predominantly Black city. We got word the night before, I think, that this, like the spear of it was already taken, but then there's this base that's you basically have to kind of like drill an uproot to get out of, um, to get off the ground. And so I think someone got word that they were doing that overnight. So what I did is that I came like in the wee hours of the morning to take a photograph. And I remember that picture went viral. Uh, basically that it's gone. Like the Confederate monument is gone. And so later that day, I heard that there was going to be a counter protest there was a rumor going around that the KKK was going to protest the removal of the Confederate monument. So I got word that there was going to be a counter protest to that protest. So um, I told my editor that, or my supervisor at the time that, and the night reporter, I wasn't a night reporter at this time, I was with Reckoner. You know, at this time, I don't even know what I was. <laughs> Because this was a, during the pandemic, it was kind of like all hands on deck and you're going to work with this supervisor. So I, I was just a reporter at this point, but we still had a night reporter. So the night reporter, um, he came with me and together we were going to just report on this counter protest. Um, so I got there before then. I was already at Lynn Park. So the, pro uh, the counter protesters, they were really just chilling, you know. It was kind of like a picnic atmosphere, honestly. They were just chilling, listening to music, singing, singing songs, eating. I think they had a meal. I don't know. Um, don't exactly remember. But it was just chill. It was really a chill atmosphere. And at this time, there was a curfew. So there were already a lot of protests happening. And because of that, um, the city put a curfew. But as a stipulation to that curfew, they said if you were part of like emergency personnel or journalists, all you needed was... A, your badge, and you're wearing your badge, and your, like, a letter from your boss saying that you had permission to be out there after curfew, and that was, that was instructions that we've gotten from City Hall, and so I know 
I think essentially all the media companies fought for that because we are journalists and we are out there just like emergency personnel is out there. So we, they wanted to make sure that we as journalists are protected. And so curfew happens. Um, the protesters or the counter protesters are still out there. The KKK never came. And so the police start talking to the counter protesters, telling them that they had to leave because of curfew and, you know, basically a conversation with them. And the counter protesters didn't do anything. They were just sitting there quietly, silently. Uh, and I would add peacefully. So I had to say a bit of time after the curfew, and I will never forget this. It had the, it felt like the whole entire police force came like flooding out of both doors of City Hall, the straight line. They're wearing like riot gear. When like these counter protesters, they didn't have anything but their backpacks. And I remember looking around because it was enough, it was a lot of law enforcement. So many that it was, it was so many of them that it was, it was enough of them to kind of like form a circle around the entire park or the majority of that park, like the perimeter of the park surrounded with police and riot gear. And I remember looking at my colleague and saying, this is obsessive. The police arrest a photographer who wasn't with us. And I think it was just uh, a photographer that was just, then they came for my colleague and me. And so I'm like, wait a minute, why are you arresting me? Uh, so I'm like, why are you arresting me? Hold on, what's going on? And so I dropped my phone as I'm recording and they reach for me and they put me in, um, I guess you can call them zip ties. And I asked them multiple times, why am I being arrested? I think I asked three times and no one answered me. Uh, they take a picture of me and my colleague in City Hall. And I guess you call them our mug shots. They were never published or anything, but they did take a picture of me. And I'm assuming they did it to the rest of the crew. In the back of City Hall, there were these, were they two or one? It was kind of like this vehicle where they basically shoved all of the counter protesters as well as us into this vehicle. First of all, it's a pandemic. There was definitely no social distancing in there. Second of all, they misgendered a counter protester. I informed them that they were misgendering this counter protester who preferred to be with the women. She was a trans woman. They would not let her be on the woman's side. So they misgendered somebody. Uh, did that right in my face, despite the fact that like, I have media on my badge. And so they put us into this um, vehicle. There were so many of us, I had to sit on someone's lap. And again, this is during the pandemic, before COVID shots, all of us wearing masks. Um, and so it only took us about like 10 minutes to get to the, to the, uh, to the, um, to the jail. And we were really, me and my colleague were only there for probably like 15 minutes before we got out. And of course I was shaken by it. And 
I'm pretty sure my colleague too, just shake about a whole entire experience. But I want to highlight that I was only there for like 15 minutes because I was like part of the media. Meanwhile, those counter protesters, they were there until dawn, if not beyond dawn, for exercising their constitutional right to protest. And so while yes, I was arrested for doing my job, they were arrested for standing up for their rights. And the things that I saw, they weren't right. You know, I feel like even though I'm a black woman, I had a a little bit of privilege there as media, but they were treated like they weren't citizens at all and weren't treated with respect. Their safety was put at risk. And quite frankly, again, someone was misgendered in front of me. And so when the mayor called me, and he called my, he called my colleague as well, I made sure that, like, he, of course, Randall Wood, the mayor Randall Wood, then, uh, apologized to me. And I said, that's great, and that's fine. However, there's apologies, there's accountability, and there needs to be changes to be made. And I told him that the things that I saw and the things that I experienced. Uh, he said that he wrote them down and he was gonna handle it. He was gonna give those notes to his team. And that was that. Of course, like for me, there was trauma there. I took off two days of work. Now I know I should have took off more time because that was probably my first recollection of uh, how trauma can be trapped in your body even though you're mentally not processing it. That was just me first time. I can only imagine how bad a trauma is for people having and the trauma they had experienced. And I'm not taking that back. I'm not taking that statement back because that should not have happened. Yeah, yeah, that was, um, that was all I wanted to say. I just wanted to make it clear that like, yeah, it was hard for me, but it was definitely harder for them. And I always wanted to write a, a column about it, but I never got the opportunity to because by the time we got our apologies, um, it was it was it wasn't like the next day. I guess at that time I wasn't sure if I could say anything. And so um, I'm saying something now. As we close here, is there a black female journalist from history that you think that we should know more about? I feel like she's getting a lot of credit now, but Ida B. Wells um, is probably my favorite journalist from back then um, because, or back in the day, uh, definitely deserved her kudos um, back then too. When I was a journalist at, um, at um, the University of Mississippi, I don't know if you saw this, but um, I led a protest at the University of Mississippi because, um, and you might have to look back at this story, but I believe how it happened was like, I think there was like two frat boys or they were pledging at the time, put a noose around the James Meredith statue and James Meredith's first black student at the University of Mississippi. And so there was a big, huge commotion about it. Um, it was at that time and a little bit now, um, the University of Mississippi uh, couldn't stay out of the national media for its racial tensions at the time. Um, 
And so I led a protest and it was probably like the largest protest in response to that, uh, to that um, racist incident. And so, because I was a journalist, I remember the um, advisor for the Daily Mississippian telling me that I couldn't um, write about, you know, protests and things like that anymore because I did this. If I could somehow like go back in time and, and um, talk, to, talk to that advisor, I would respectfully tell her that, that I'm trying to be careful when I say this, that there was nothing wrong with me doing that. I talked to her about Ida B. Wells. Ida B. Wells was an activist herself. <laughs> she was out here leading this force that was basically unveiling the lynchings of Black people. And that was, a, you know, of course, media played a role in that too. So whenever people tell me about objectivity, I always ask object, ob objective for who? Um, she's kind of like my example, Ida B. Wells is my example that I use whenever someone like may question the fact that, you know, you were activists back in the day, you know, and I feel like that I still am. I'm using my journalism as activism. Uh, and she's definitely gave us the blueprint for community journalism. Um, Movement journalism, that is definitely someone that always deserves her praise and her roses. And there's so many other things that she did too, but as for like journalists, as a journal black woman journalist, um, that's somebody who I really look up to. She's been uh, popular on this podcast brought up by more than a few people. Uh, of all different ages, races, backgrounds, um, and so forth. Uh, last question. Is there a journalist or jur journalism organization that you're not affiliated with that you would like to salute for their good work? Presson.media? Yeah, mm -hmm, that's them. And so, how do I describe them? So Presson is basically like a Southern like media collective. Um, and they are like a collective of like, uh, journalists, um, different types of storytellers. So you don't have to really be in a journalism field, but um, storytelling comes in many forms. So essentially they, they take these um, beautiful storytellers and I believe we were the first class that was part of the Freedom Ways Fellowship. Um, the full program yeah, okay. So the pool, full name of the program is the Freedom Ways Reporting Residency Cohort. Uh, so I was part of the 2019-2020 cohort. cohort. Um, and uh, man, they taught me a lot about, they really pushed me to go beyond um, traditional reporting. Um, before I did this fellowship, I feel like I was kind of like floating around um, I knew that I wanted to report more community voices uh, as a journalist, but I didn't know what to call it. And so when I learned about, when I learned about this fellowship and became a part of it, it really kind of a, deconstructed uh, some of the things that I've learned about in reporting, um, such as objectivity. 
and uh, really challenged me and taught how to connect with communities. Um, and a lot of the stuff that I do with Reckon um, is kind of like rooted in the reporting that I did for the Freedom Most Fellowship. Uh, so my, my fellowship reporting uh, focused on how we tell Black history in Alabama, which a lot of Black history is in Alabama. However, um, and even still, um, it's better than it was back then, but it's not all fleshed out uh, is what I learned. And so they helped me kind of create a game plan and um, connect with communities more uh, that traditionally probably wouldn't have gotten, you know, the spotlight in um, traditional media reporting. And even though I wasn't reporting on uh, like LGBTQ, LGBTQ issues for this fellowship, uh, it, it helped me, uh, gave me the tools to learn how to connect with communities and build trust with them and things of that nature and understand movements and connect with other storytellers who I also believe deserve their roses. And so that uh, is basically who I would like to give a big shout out to uh, that whole entire organization. They're fairly new. So if people would check them out and give them a donation, that would be great. Press on, um, press on yeah. dot media is the is the link for that. Star Dunningan, uh, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck. Thank you so much. Best of luck to you as well, Mark. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at journalismpod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.